Welcome to Slow Stories. I'm Rachel Schwartzman, the founder of Connected Editorial and the host and creator of this podcast. For those of you just joining in, Slow Stories is a series that deep dives into the rising slow content movement. In each of these episodes, I interview brand builders, entrepreneurs, and creative professionals who share what slow content means in the context of what they're building and why slowing down and creating thoughtful stories is more important than ever. This episode begins with a reading from Melissa Phoebos. Ahead of my conversation with both Melissa and Forsyth Harmon, enjoy a brief reading from Melissa, who shares an excerpt from Girlhood, her latest essay collection, which we'll be chatting about in just a few minutes. But for now, here's more from Melissa. The story went like this. I was a happy child, if also a strange one. There were griefs, but I was safe and well-loved. The age of 10 or 11, the time when my childhood became more distinctly a girlhood, marked a violent turn from this. Everyone knows that adolescents rebel, girls in particular. Still, my own girlhood felt tinged by a darkness that the story of adolescent rebellion did not suffice to explain. In the years since, I have worried the question, what was wrong with me? I did not deserve to have been so tormented. Despite how unspeakable it felt at the time, I no longer think that the pains or darkness of my own girlhood were exceptional. It is a darker time for many than we are often willing to acknowledge. During it, we learn to adopt a story about ourselves, what our value is, what beauty is, what is harmful, and what is normal, and to privilege the feelings, comfort, perceptions, and power of others over our own. This training of our minds can lead to the exile of many parts of the self, to hatred for and the abuse of our own bodies, the policing of other girls, and a lifetime of allegiance to values that do not prioritize our safety, happiness, freedom, or pleasure. Though mine was among the last girlhoods untouched by the internet, I have found many of the same challenges among those who've grown up since. For years, I considered it impossible to undo much of this indoctrination. Knowing about it was not enough, but I have found its undoing more possible than I suspected. The same way that I have taught my mind and my body to collaborate in a habitual set of practices that eventually coalesce into a skill that can be strengthened, such as throwing a softball, singing, jogging long distances, or writing, so I have found it possible to train my mind to act in accordance with my beliefs, and sometimes to discover what those are. Like any process of conditioning, it is tedious, minute, and demands rigorous attention. It cannot be done alone. It is in part by writing this book that I have corrected the story of my own girlhood and found ways to recover myself. I have found company in the stories of other women, and the revelation of all our ordinariness has itself been curative. Writing has always been a way to reconcile my lived experience with the narratives available to describe it or lack thereof. My hope is that these essays do some of that work for you, too. Lasting conscientious change in the self is similar to one in society. It requires consistent tending. It is sometimes painful and often tedious. We must choose it over and over. 
This is one of the many resonant passages readers will come across from writer Melissa Phoebos in her latest book, Girlhood. In this stunning essay collection, Melissa deftly examines and interrogates the stories we're told as girls, how these narratives inform who we become as adults, and the ways we can transcend them to be in service of the self. Alongside Melissa's writing, each piece features a stunning illustration by Forsyth Harmon, who is also the author and artist of the novel Justine. At the beginning of each essay, Forsyth lends her signature illustration style, simple, sharp, and effortless line drawings to create a portal inside. While these visuals are black and white on the page, girlhood as a whole reminds us to traverse the gray area that often makes up adolescence, that liminal space between who we're told to be and ultimately owning who we really are. Together, Melissa and Forsyth's work renders a nuanced portrait of how our girlhoods shape us, challenge us, and stay with us. And in this interview, Melissa and Forsyth shared more about how these themes informed both of their books, what led them to collaborate on girlhood, and the role of pace in their creative lives. There's a lot to get into, but if you're curious to learn more about Melissa and Forsyth's other work, you can check out Melissa's books Whip Smart and Abandon Me, along with The Art of the Affair by Catherine Lee which was illustrated by Forsyth. But for now, here's more from Melissa Phoebos, author of Girlhood, and Forsyth Harmon, author and illustrator of Justine. interesting I think as an artist outside of my profession sort of the practice of writing really sort of has a professional realm and then also the whole rest of my life is like completely saturated by that practice and so I would say outside of my profession which is as a creative writing professor and an author my life is composed of my artistic practice, my relationships with other people, my spiritual life. I'm sober, so my recovery from addiction. And it's really actually hard for me to sort of separate the elements of my life. They're all very sort of interlocking. And I would say the sort of locus of them all is my artistic process. And everything kind of radiates in a way from that. Yeah, it's funny. It's difficult for me also to sort of like separate my life out from profession. I feel like I lead a kind of double professional life in that I'm a writer and an illustrator, but I also, I guess, daylight as a corporate creative director. (laughs) And maybe, you know, I would add beyond my artistic practices, I guess I would say I also have like important intake practices in terms of just being like a really voracious reader. You know, I just, I really love the escape of reading and it's how I put myself to bed every night and it's how I recharge and regenerate in order to, I guess, perform the roles of, you know, not just sort of the dual professional life, but also mother to a young child. That resonates with me a lot. I think reading for me is something I've had to walk myself back to over the last couple of years. But I think in the last year, it's only just underscored how dearly I hold language and words and ideas. And I think on the subject of values, what do you value about one another as artists? Oh, wow. I love this question. I mean, Melissa has been such an inspiration to me as a writer. Abandon Me was technically the first book I ever bookstagrammed. Um, (laughs) I didn't know that. (laughs) Yeah, it was. And um, I just, you know, when I came across her work was really touched by it. And then, you know, of course, 
meet her in person and, and thrilled to do the collaboration. But, you know, I think Melissa has this fearlessness in her writing and this capability to sort of tread where others may have stopped. And so, you know, as someone who, you know, sometimes thinks of myself as like hiding behind the scrim of stylization and fiction, I really admire her bravery in really sort of digging in the way that she does in girlhood. Thank you so much for Scythe. Yeah, I feel really similarly. As someone who has always been sort of like a single medium artist, I am in absolute awe of people who can work in multiple mediums. And I don't know many who can work in multiple mediums with the kind of expertise and nuance and focus that Forsyth does in addition to like all the other things she does in her life. But it has been such an absolute joy to sort of see the mind of an artist and a writer which I find really sort of relatable and understandable and and just simpatico in a lot of ways to see the way that her mind and talents can sort of filter content and experience through a completely different facet of her imagination and emerge with this incredibly gorgeous, unexpected, precise artwork. And, And to have seen my own work be filtered through her imagination has been just such an absolute gift. And and I would just say that Forsyth is someone, and I know I'm not the only person who feels this way, who just has like amazing taste in basically everything. And she, you know, just yesterday I sent her, I just forwarded her some possible book covers from the art department for my next book. And she's just like the first person I would think of getting. I have like two friends who have amazing taste in everything, but particularly in terms of design and art. And I would just value her opinion above most other people's in basically anything. I really appreciate that. Sometimes like being kind of polymathic, I think I just do like a lot of things mediocre. (laughs) And I get really intimidated by people who have like maybe like a deeper expertise in one area. So I appreciate that. I also think that that is just because I feel that way too, just about writing. Oh, and I didn't even talk about her writing. When Forsyth sent me (laughs) an earlier draft, not even the one that was published, but an earlier draft of her novel, I remember texting her like halfway through. And, you know, it's like one always wants to be supportive of one's artist friends. But the problem with being a really supportive artist friend is that I sometimes use language that when I read someone's work, I remember just struggling for the right words to say, no, really, like if I picked this book up, in a bookstore, I would buy it and finish it that day. Like it's different from being able to sort of appreciate someone's work in the abstract, like as a reader. So, you know, there's a part of me that I think, I don't know, in the past would have been like insecure, resentful of people with that, who can succeed in that many forms, but I just absolutely celebrate her. So, okay, I'm done. Oh, I love it. I, I, I get that though. I mean, I think we're taught to really hone in and develop expertise in something. But I've personally found as I've kind of waded my way through creativity and just my professional identity that having different skill sets to call upon can just bring so much more depth to a story, no matter what medium it's intended to be told in. And yeah, there's just so much overlap, I think, based off of reading Girlhood and Justine. And I'm really excited to talk to you about both of the books and the collaboration. But before we do, I'm also curious if there's a story that you have come across, whether it was an article, a poem that made you slow down recently or sort of reconsider your own relationship with girlhood. I mean, I'll say like there were a spade of 
articles that came out around that New York Times Britney Spears documentary, <laughs> Freeing Britney, um, which I just read that she didn't like. And I respect that and could see that. But, you know, I did my own reflection around it as someone who came of age around the time she rose to fame. And Tavi Givenson wrote a piece about it in The Cut, sort of thinking about like young beauty creating a kind of illusion of power. And then there was also a piece in The Guardian about how poorly specifically we treated female pop stars and actresses in the early aughts. And I think all of that together, in addition, of course, of coming off illustrating Melissa's work and being very close to you know putting out my own in the world inspired me to like slow down and maybe reconsider the messages I internalized as a younger woman and also how they continue to affect me now as I age. And so I've been writing in my journal about beauty and aging and mortality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say I have a little sort of book club working group that is reading Sonia Renee Taylor's The Body is Not an Apology. And when I started reading this book, it's about sort of the practice of radical self-love as a sort of personal and a political Mm. practice. And when I started reading it, my first thought was like, oh, I wish I had read this when I was writing Girlhood. It's so connected. And, you know, as I've progressed reading it, I'm actually, it makes sense to me that I didn't. It feels like a really good progression for my thinking around it. Because, you know, for me, the process of writing Girlhood was really one of sort of reflecting on the individual work of undoing sort of patriarchal conditioning for a kind of personal self-actualization and also sort of looking at the larger political or cultural social reverberations of that work. But it was really sort of focused pretty almost entirely on sort of gender, right? And I think it needed to be focused that way for me to sort through my own stories and my own work and to sort of pin down what it meant to me and why. And, you know, in another sort of category, I've been doing like personal slash outward anti-racist work for a long time. But these practices and these kinds of work were sort of siloed in my life and in my mind. And this book that I'm reading, Taylor's book, The Body is Not an Apology, really draws them together and frames it all as kind of a single work in a way that feels really sort of timely in general, just like historically, but also in my own experience, I think I needed to do some individual work and sort of articulating what it meant to me in both realms. And it's really sort of pushing me into a more holistic way of of viewing them and practicing them. You were able to call on so many incredible literary texts, other anecdotes from women, and just create this picture of the experience of girlhood and how we carry some of that with us into adulthood. And for those listening who might not be as familiar with either of your work, are you able to share a passage from your books that you think kind of provides a nice preview for new readers? Yeah, I'm happy to read the first page of Justine. I first saw her on the other side of the conveyor belt. She was so tall and thin, she looked almost two-dimensional. Her long fingers fluttering over the cash register keys, her long arms passing my trident sugar-free gum and Diet Coke over the sensor. Her own can of Diet Coke sweated a ring on the countertop beside her. Her face was long, too. And her skin was so pale, it was bluish like skim milk and transparent in places, veins visible at the temples. Her complexion created an unsettling contrast with her hair, which was cut into a chin-length pitch-black bob. She pulled at the ends of it with those long fingers, shoving the hair into her mouth, wide and protruding, as though closed around the rind of an orange slice. 
but her eyebrows were so light they were almost non-existent, and I could see then that her inch-long roots were an ashy color, dull as dishwater. Most girls would have highlighted hair that color, made it blonder, but Justine went dark. There was something spooky about the lighter roots. There was something spooky about Justine altogether. That's what the name tag attached to her red stop-and-shop apron said, Justine. You know, for the purposes of overview, it probably makes the most sense to just read the short author's note that I have at the beginning of the book, which, you know, I actually spent just as much time laboring over as any other passage in the book (laughs) because offering a doorway into something that took like 300 pages to articulate was no small task. So hopefully it's successful. The story went like this. I was a happy child, if also a strange one. There were griefs, but I was safe and well-loved. The age of 10 or 11, the time when my childhood became more distinctly a girlhood, marked a violent turn from this. Everyone knows that adolescents rebel, girls in particular. Still, my own girlhood felt tinged by a darkness that the story of adolescent rebellion did not suffice to explain. In the years since, I have worried the question, what was wrong with me? I did not deserve to have been so tormented. Despite how unspeakable it felt at the time, I no longer think that the pains or darkness of my own girlhood were exceptional. It is a darker time for many than we are often willing to acknowledge. During it, we learn to adopt a story about ourselves, what our value is, what beauty is, what is harmful, and what is normal, and to privilege the feelings, comfort, perceptions, and power of others over our own. This training of our minds can lead to the exile of many parts of the self, to hatred for and the abuse of our own bodies, the policing of other girls, and a lifetime of allegiance to values that do not prioritize our safety, happiness, freedom, or pleasure. Though mine was among the last girlhoods untouched by the internet, I have found many of the same challenges among those who've grown up since. For years, I considered it impossible to undo much of this indoctrination. Knowing about it was not enough, but I have found its undoing more possible than I suspected. The same way that I have taught my mind and my body to collaborate in a habitual set of practices that eventually coalesce into a skill that can be strengthened, such as throwing a softball, singing, jogging long distances, or writing, so I have found it possible to train my mind to act in accordance with my beliefs, and sometimes to discover what those are. Like any process of conditioning, it is tedious, minute, and demands rigorous attention. It cannot be done alone. It is in part by writing this book that I have corrected the story of my own girlhood and found ways to recover myself. I have found company in the stories of other women, and the revelation of all our ordinariness has itself been curative. Writing has always been a way to reconcile my lived experience with the narratives available to describe it or lack thereof. My hope is that these essays do some of that work for you, too. Thank you. They certainly did for me. And just out of curiosity, I see that that note was dated March 2020. Was this right as everything was changing? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was. It really was. I was in the process of doing copy edits. And in some way, I was so grateful to have that to be able to mark the moment when this was written. Because, you know, as writers, um, there is this 
lag in time between when we finish something and when it is publicly available. And in that time, the story continues Mm -hmm. and changes and we change. And it's, I think, for all of us, certainly for me, it has always necessitated a kind of yielding or acceptance to not want to just keep adding appendices to my book, or changing <laughs> things constantly. I actually wish that I had sort of a dated author's note in every book so that I could signal to the reader where these thoughts ended. You know, it's interesting because a lot of what happens in here, particularly the essay about the cuddle party, I'm looking at it, we're all looking at it through a completely different lens than the one in which I wrote it. But it feels right to me to sort of let the book be a series of thoughts and wonderings that, that begin and end at a particular moment in time that I don't need to go back and correct with what has happened since. I guess for timeline's sake, when did you decide to kind of initiate the collaboration who approached who? I also noticed that there is a shared illustration that appears in Justine and in Girlhood. And I'm curious, you know, if there's any sort of significance with that particular visual. I'd love to hear a little bit more. I'm happy to talk about it a little bit. You know, I, as I mentioned, had loved Melissa's work and We first met at a Bookstore Magic reading. I think it was the launch of Sarah Perry's incredible memoir, After the Eclipse, Mm. which I really recommend so strongly to anyone listening. And not long after that, I saw that, you know, as you see in Girlhood, she was looking on social media for persons to describe their personal experiences with Peeping Toms. And I wrote to her about mine and also volunteered to illustrate the essay that she was asking for those experiences for, which was called Intrusions and was appearing in Tin House when they published a magazine. And so that was how we first collaborated on that one piece and on that one essay. Yeah. And after that experience was so fun and interesting and unlike, you know, I had never collaborated with anyone as a writer and um and never even really thought about it and so as soon as we had done that I went to my editor and I said would it be at all possible to ask for sight to illustrate this book and my editor to my great surprise said yes <laughs> um and so then I I went to Forsyth and asked if she would be interested and the rest is sort of history Yeah, I was so thrilled when you asked, being such a fan of the work. And, you know, as both a writer and as an artist, like, really grateful for opportunities for collaboration and to sort of get insight into the working process and mind of another writer and artist. So that really felt like a gift to me. And yeah, in terms of the illustration that appears twice, it's for those of you who aren't familiar with either of our work, it's an illustration of a very slender uh, female body in, in a string bikini. And it happens to be Kate Moss, as particularly featured in a 1994 Calvin Klein ad, which, you know, I think as a young person was just seared into my memory and created a kind of template for how I expected myself to look. And like my narrator and Justine Alley, you know, was a part of a kind of inspiration for really self-destructive eating habits. And Melissa in the collection has this beautiful essay called The Mirror Test. And, you know, I hadn't originally intended to reuse the illustration between the two places, but she specifically sort of describes a bathing suit incident early on. And Mm -hmm. it felt sort of right to do so, not just for the essay and her book, but as a way of, I guess, like 
marking for myself how intensely that image impacted my Mm -hmm. life and probably the lives of so many other girls. And in no way is it blaming fashion or blaming Kate Moss. It's it's a fact that that image is burned into the back of my brain. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm allowing that to sort of be known. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, I mean, you know, Forsyth and I are the same age. And so I think we both grew up, we both came of age, like in the early nineties, you know, and it was a very, emaciated moment <laughs> yeah I mean it, ha- it has been for a very long time but that feels to me like really the sort of nadir of you know heroin chic mm-hmm. and Kate Moss and just absolutely just totally like this kind of body was so idealized at that moment and I have similar a similar little catalog of images from that time. I was actually just writing something new in which I talk about a, a movie that I saw right around that time. And afterwards was like, well, I'm going to just try not ever eating and seeing what happens. <laughs> um, and I love that, that, you know, I knew some of this backstory and it felt, you know, when we were sort of going through our process with this book, it felt like a really special way for Forsyth personally to sort of, step into the book and have her experience really be sort of a part of the narrative visually. And I absolutely love that the illustration is in both books and it feels like, I don't know, like, like they share, it's a visual way of sort of representing their shared DNA, you know, and that Mm. they are really sort of cousins and also like a little sort of watermark of Forsyth's mind and experience. I absolutely love it. It sets the tone for sure. And Melissa, I think during the bomb event, correct me if I'm wrong, but you mentioned that you actually are drawn to writing for the fact that it's a solitary process. Mm-hmm. What was it like to kind of have to let someone else in creatively? Oh, it was wonderful because Forsyth wasn't telling me what to do with my writing at all. <laughs> and the, the thing, you know, I have I have had friends who actually collaborated and sort of co-wrote things with other people. And I suspect that the reality of that would actually be incredibly fun because I have a very kind of collaborative spirit and I'm really extroverted, you know, but I just, it is so foreign to me. And the privacy of writing is so fundamental to what I do there and the ways that I am trying to articulate things that I absolutely cannot tolerate being seen saying (laughs) for the first time. (laughs) Like I cannot, I cannot speak them to other people. I cannot even speak them to myself. And writing is the very, very solitary room where I practice articulating things that feel unspeakable. And so to have someone else in that room with me, I don't know what that would mean, but it's a very, it's a terrifying prospect. Um, And I also am just, you know, a control freak about my sentences and my work. And so it feels very safe to have total control over that space until I'm ready for someone else to see it. But this is a different kind of collaboration where it's like Forsyth was working in an adjacent room and we were sort of walking <laughs> back and forth into each other's rooms, not uh, touching, sort of, sort not of like, rearranged. Sort of like texting each other from different rooms in the same house, right, you know? <laughs> right, And we weren't like trying to rearrange each other's rooms, but we were coordinating them in a way that I just loved it. And it felt like, you know, I, I once had the experience of listening to an actor read my work at an event, like perform my work. And 
it felt like weirdly intrusive and entirely exhilarating to see my experience and words like move through someone else's medium. And this was like that, except without the intrusive element. It was just (laughs) because it was, she wasn't replicating my own words. She was just using them to create something totally different. I would be happy to collaborate on like everything I ever write for the rest of my life in this way. It was so fun. (laughs) Yeah, it was so much fun for me too. I love reading the work and trying to get a sense of, you know, what imagery within it winds up being sort of representative or symbolic of the intention of the work. Mm -hmm. And so I did that on a by essay basis because each illustration is sort of a frontispiece for each essay. But I also thought about it across the collection, sort of thinking about this constellation of imagery that appears throughout and then could sort of scatter itself across illustrations. And it really was a rewarding process. And I've said this before, like it was sort of like sifting for gold, except for that everything is gold. So, you know, um, I I just came up with what I could. Wow. Thank you. I will say also that our interactions have affected and contributed to my own conception of my work, just to see the way that Forsyth, like, Early on, there were different sort of configurations of the illustrations and the way that she articulated this sort of character and not only the character, but this kind of the structure of my work helped me see it with an objectivity that I didn't have access to before that. Yeah. And I'd love to know a little bit about what your girlhood artistic tendencies were like. Is there something that you lost creatively during that time that writing this book or illustrating the book helped you kind of reclaim? That's a really great question. I'm sure that the answer is yes. <laughs> and it I, might be, what were you going to say? For I was going to say definitely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I both wrote and drew a lot as a young person. I was an only child and it was how I sort of busied myself a lot of the time. But it was, in fact, like during the transition from girlhood to adolescence that both my mother and my best friend read my journal and both had sort of different ways of projecting their anger about what was contained therein. Let's just say that. And I feel like in some ways I sort of shut down as a writer as a consequence of that, you know, for fear that if I sort of unabandonedly spoke my truth, that there would be retribution. And I think, you know, interacting with what I've said is like Melissa's sort of very brave work as an illustrator, like opened up a part of me that had been dormant, you know, despite having written about adolescence and and growing up that allowed me to think about how I approach my next writing project in a less guarded way. That's really, really interesting and really wonderful to hear. I will say that I, you know, similarly, when I was a kid, you know, I've been writing, scribbling in notebooks as literally as far back as I can remember. And I also, my father read my diary when I was an adolescent and it was like kind of a catastrophic experience. Um, And even before that, I was a very secretive sort of private person. And the way that I've spoken about sort of the privacy of the writing space has been important to me forever. And so that was obviously a hard moment. 
And I also, you know, I think as a younger person still today, but certainly as a younger person, I was always sort of caught in this tension between a really powerful loyalty to myself and my own drives and interests and instinct and a confidence in those and also a devastating drive to sort of you know, be skinny and um, likable and all of the things that our culture tells girls that they need to be and had like a deep desire to please. And so it was really, really stressful to be inside of my own mind when I was a kid Mm -hmm. and particularly around adolescence. And I will say that for years, the way that this sort of manifested was that, you know, I was always writing and I was always very creative, but all the way through like college and even most of graduate school, my writing was, I was striving to sort of use my creator given drives to write the kind of work that I anticipated other people taking seriously. And girlhood is not that work. (laughs) Girlhood (laughs) is the work that I think as an adolescent privately, like being the voracious and far flung reader that I was like, it is the work that I always wanted to write that I got sidetracked from, which is to say, like, it takes very, very seriously the concerns of girlhood and the dramas of girlhood. And it is also incredibly frank and lyrical and brainy. And I say, like, there's a part of me that's like, you can't say that your work is all these things. But I know that it is because that was like the experience of writing it was like of absorbing and listening to and like follow. Like, I know exactly the trails that I followed to write this book. And they are ones that I set out on at like 11 years old, you know. So I think that this book was a kind of homecoming in some ways to myself at that time. Thank you for saying all of that. It's something that I'm re-correcting about how I navigated girlhood. I was always conditioned to be agreeable and to not talk up my own achievements. So yes, please say all of those things because they are absolutely true. And I feel like at least as a reader, there are certain books that come into your life at the time they're supposed to come in. Something that I've noticed is I've had a homecoming to reading myself. And I'm curious about the role of pace in both of your work and timing and why you felt this was the right time to put a book like this out into the world and generally just how you view pace in the context of your creative practice. You know, it's really funny because throughout the process of publishing this book, so many people have said, oh, what a perfect time for for this book. And my response to that is there is no time, at least during my lifetime, that it wouldn't have been a perfect time to publish this book because feminist concerns are ongoing. I mean, I do think that we are at a moment where people are more interested in hearing about it than they ever have been before. And my hope is that that continues to be the trend, you know, Mm -hmm. but it has been the experience of my life and particularly that of my writing life that just as you said, you know, Jung called it synchronicity. There's like a lot of words for for what it means to sort of cultivate a kind of awakeness in your life such that one can recognize the important things when one encounters them. And 
that's sort of how I understand listening to my creative impulses, listening to when someone like Forsyth crosses my path and, and when to pause and note things. And I think at a certain point, if I've cultivated this awakeness and I'm paying the right kind of attention, life starts to feel a little bit like a jigsaw puzzle that's being completed. And I don't think it's, I mean, maybe it's magic, maybe, you know, whatever. You can explain it in mystical terms. You can explain it in psychological terms. You can explain it in neurological terms. But I did not choose to write and publish this book at this particular moment, right? I just listened to the book that I was ready to write and it told me what to do. Mm -hmm. That's so beautiful. I love the idea of instead of dragging it behind you, like letting the muse lead you, um, Mm -hmm. because that's what it sounds like. And, you know, I would say that my relationship with pace and with timing has just changed so much in the past, you know, year, but even years. I mean, I think for a lot of us, it changed with some of the forced shifts of quarantine life, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, as a part of that, my family moved from Brooklyn to a small town upstate and there was this slowing of pace and like a reduction of stimulation and also at the same time a reduction in expenses which created a kind of financial relief which led to a kind of existential relief that I actually wasn't expecting and you know that release of a pressure valve has opened up time and also mental space, which I think is what is necessary in order to pay the kind of attention Melissa refers to, because most of my life I've been rushing around, you know, focused on getting as much done in as little a time as possible and achieving a preconceived outcome that without time and space or an awareness of time and space or ability to ground into time and space, letting the muse lead you isn't possible because Mm -hmm. there isn't enough silence to hear it. Yes. Everything that she just said. Also, the refrain of my childhood was slow down, Melissa. (laughs) And my nickname in my family was Crash because I was always moving really quickly and thinking about something other than what I was doing. And so I was an like extravagantly clumsy child and I was constantly like falling up and downstairs and like skidding into walls and like banging against tables and counter corners. And writing is the thing that taught me to slow down. It was the thing that I cared about most that demanded it. And so I was willing to sort of slow down my process because it was became clear to me probably in like my mid to late 20s, that I could not do the kind of work I wanted to do unless I slowed down and made some space. And I think since then, it has been honestly, the main project of my selfhood in the world is like figuring out how to renegotiate the pace of my life, of everything in my life with the parts of me that seem to be in a hurry all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And that has, yeah, pandemic has actually facilitated that in some really transformative ways. And, you know, it's like, I think, particularly for the last five years, I have been like, this is a priority of mine. This is a priority of mine. And now it's actually happening after like four and a half years of thinking about it and talking about it and writing about it. In the last like six months, I have actually seen it sort of materializing, which is actually pretty fast for like a big fundamental change (laughs) in my experience. (laughs) Yeah. 
I think I mentioned this before we started recording, but it's something that I've had to constantly check in in terms of my personal, professional, creative goals. And, you know, my own girlhood was marked by the advent of the internet. I was born in 92 and the digital landscape is so integral to how I show up. It's also something that scares me with how embedded it's become in every facet of my life, particularly in terms of how I tell stories and then how they're perceived by others. And so in this very sort of volatile, interconnected age, I'm curious if you hope that girlhood or Justine brings something to the conversation in terms of helping people to slow down and start these conversations with others or with themselves. Yeah. I mean, I would say similar to what Forsyth articulated about how the kind of attention and slowness that we need to cultivate in order to hear what she called the muse and what I think of as like my creative intelligence, like the various intelligences and instincts that reside below my conscious mind, which is most of them. Um, (laughs) The same kind of slowness is required for me to hear other kinds of intelligences and other communication that's happening inside of me. And a lot of that is what I tried to articulate in girlhood, that the kind of personal liberation and transformation and connection with the self, the intimacy that subsequently can result in relationships with other people, but that always really begins with the self and its parts, the same kind of slowness is required for that kind of listening. Like the pause necessary to stop and think, am I actually comfortable with this? What do I think and what are the beliefs that have been implanted in me by my culture, by history, you know, like in order to tease apart and make those distinctions, I have to stop doing other things. (laughs) And that has to be the only thing that I'm doing. It's a very nuanced kind of attention. Like I said, I think writing and maybe to some extent, certain kinds of relationshiping and communication with other people are the only places that have asked that of me or that I've been willing to listen to. Hmm. It's interesting, you know, thinking about both books um, in relation to, to pace and reflection and culture and media. Justine takes place just pre-internet, but in a no less saturated media landscape. So we're looking at a lot of glossy magazines. We're looking at mixtapes. And in the case of the narrator's grandmother, we're looking at a lot of radio and television. And I feel like Girlhood and Justine are cousins and that they deal with a lot of the same sort of trials and tribulations of growing up female. But while Girlhood sort of looks at healing, Justine is a little bit more just observation of, you know, the way that these traumas and medias sort of work on a young person. And so I would hope and have seen some readings that would suggest some reflection on pace and on media. But I do think that maybe the relationship, you know, to healing is like a bit less direct. Sometimes I worry Justine is sort of like, you know, the evil twin of girlhood. (laughs) Here's what happens when you don't heal. (laughs) I definitely do not think of her as an evil twin. I mean, maybe Justine the character, but but the book is, it seems to me like an an articulation of like they're saying the same things in different, in different ways. (laughs) 
It's a tricky thing to talk about because it's universal, but it's not. Everybody's experience of girlhood or adolescence is just so singular. And, you know, as you continue to talk about girlhood, both as a book and just as a larger conversation, I'm wondering if there is a particular question that you hope people start asking you more often. I think just to look at it in a broader perspective, there is so much about human society and ourselves that we take for granted as given, and almost none of it is, you know? We just made it all up, or someone (laughs) before us did, and it's all changeable. One of the great benefits of being a drug addict in recovery is that I have undergone utter transformation in so many ways. And all it took was willingness, a deep desire, and community, you know? And so in my mind, there is almost no limit to what those powers and collaboration can change. And I mean that on a personal level, on a societal level, on a global level, I really am fundamentally really optimistic about the potential for change. And so my hope is that Girlhood illustrates just a corner of sort of what's possible if we stop and think, is this a given? Is this how it's always been? And even if it is, need it be? And if the answer is no, that we gather whatever resources we have to try to begin the process of moving in a different direction. I guess after, you know, going through my first interviews of my career as a a writer and an illustrator, I like that at the beginning of the session, you asked us what we value in life. I think that might be the first time I heard that question after, you know, a dozen or so interviews and conversations. And I would love it if in these forums, we talk more about that and what we think the point of life is and whether or not there's free will. It sounds like Melissa thinks there is. (laughs) Do we really make choices? (laughs) And what about the afterlife? You know, like I really want to know whether or not we reincarnate. Maybe these questions will appear in my next book so that I can get asked about that. Yeah, that's definitely probably grounds for an entirely other conversation. Um, (laughs) But still important, still important to ask. Yeah, so much more. But I think to kind of bring this conversation to a close, would you both be open to doing one more reading? I'll read a selection from the beginning of chapter seven, appropriate maybe to the coming time of year. Justine and I lay stomach down on our lounge chairs alongside her pool. Sweating in silence, crows cawed, bugs floated on the water's surface. Below, a vacuum crept along the vinyl lining. The deck was dilapidated. Grass and dandelions grew from cracks in the asphalt. We drank vodka and Diet Coke. The vinyl chair straps dug into my thighs, making red stripes on my flesh like meat on a grill. Justine stood up and stretched, bikini top hanging loose across her flat chest, ribs visible, the gap between her thighs impossibly wide. She curled her toes over the pool's edge, swung her arms, shifted to the balls of her feet, and dove in. Justine shot across the water. She floated, stomach up, eyes closed, hair fanning. Her limbs drifted. Justine's body was as smooth and white as a shell's inside, like I could put my ear to her stomach and hear the Atlantic. I wanted to touch her ribs. I wanted to untie the strings at her neck, triangles floating away to reveal the flat nothing they covered. I wanted to be inside her body, drawing her knees and arms up, pushing them down against the water, propelling myself across the pool's glittering surface.
maybe I'll just read a description that sort of speaks to what we've been talking about. And this is just a little description in the essay Wild America in Girlhood, which describes a game that I used to play alone when I was a kid. And I think the connection will probably be clear. The game was this. Alone, I would trudge to that place in the woods where the pines were tallest and at the right time of year, the ground a bed of their smooth needles. Close to our house, but not in view of any human construct, I would lie on the ground, close my eyes, and clean my mind like a chalkboard. Sometimes I made a story for myself, but it was crude and beside the point. I was from another planet. I had been struck amnesiac. All that mattered was that I'd fallen from the sky a stranger. My eyes would flutter open and carefully absorb my surroundings. I might clutch a handful of pine needles to my face, inhale their green scent, touch a slender spoke to my tongue. In summer, I would wade into the pond, imagine it was the first water ever to close around my ankles like two cool mouths. In the outskirts of our yard, I stalked our family dog, my heart pounding. I discovered the garden hose and drank the contents of its sun-warmed belly. Sometimes I made it all the way inside the house without detection. Oh, the frightful pleasure of making the most known place in the world an alien landscape. The cool shadows of an interior, the naked smoothness of floors, the absurd bounty of cabinets stuffed with food. My wonder was bottomless for the world empty of stories, mine alone to name. Melissa Phoebos and Forsyth Harmon. You can order Girlhood and Justine anywhere books are sold, but we recommend supporting local and independent bookstores if you can. You can also follow Melissa and Forsyth on social media at Melissa Phoebos and at Forsyth Harmon. Stay tuned as we'll be sharing highlights from this episode on our own social channels at Slow Stories Official on Instagram and at Slow Stories Pod on Twitter. I'm Rachel Schwartzman, and you've been listening to Slow Stories. Thank you so much for tuning in.